0: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers.
1: This is space for conversation,
2: discussion with social workers, the individuals they support
0: and colleagues working in related professions.
2: We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues
3: with a focus at the local,
2: national and global levels.
3: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLanahan, and in this episode, we'll discuss a hugely important issue, which we touched on all the way back in episode one, when we explored the role of social workers in disasters. Today, my guests and I will be discussing the social work response to climate change and environmental injustice. And although the links may not be immediately apparent, climate change is having and will continue to exert a huge impact on the lives of many of the people social workers support. And it's these links, along with how social workers can respond, that I'll be discussing with my three guests. They are Jerry Nasovska, Chair of Basri UK, Professor Lena Dominelli from the University of Stirling and Professor John Barry from Queen's University Belfast. Jerry, John and Lena, how are you all feeling today? Jerry, you first, how are you doing?
0: Doing all right, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here.
3: It's good to have you back. You, you were last with us, we were talking about populism in Europe and the social work response.
0: Yes, and that's also quite relevant to the today, I think, as well.
3: And that was, I think that was back in, that was for World Social Work Day, it seems like just a, a,
0: a, you know,
3: a few days ago, but it was back in March. But welcome, welcome back. Where are you, Jerry?
0: I'm in Cornwall at home at the moment.
3: Lovely, lovely. Welcome. And Lena, how are you doing?
0: Hi, I'm great. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Good. Lena, you were with us for that first episode on social work and disaster. So welcome back. This is now episode twenty five, which feels like something of a of a milestone. Thank you for coming back. Uh, whereabouts are you right now?
2: I'm actually in Stirling because we've started our um, MSC in Disaster Intervention and Humanitarian Aid, which was just an idea at the time you and I last spoke.
3: Congratulations. Well done. That's great.
2: Thank you. That's great.
3: And John, welcome. For the first time, breaking the Let's Talk Social Work doc, Professor John Barry. How are you doing? That's,
1: that's great. Thank you, Andy. I'm uh, doing very well. And greetings from uh, Hollywood County Down. Uh, we often say one L of the town, because as you can tell, it just has not to be included with the other Hollywood. And it's delighted uh, that I am to be back talking with you, Andy, not least because uh, it's nice to see that our graduates are gainfully employed, given that you had to suffer my lectures on climate breakdown many moons ago.
3: Benefit from massively. Uh, just to the listeners, uh, John taught me undergraduate politics at Queen's University quite a long time ago. It doesn't feel like it, John, but most of 20 years, if you can believe it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks to everyone for joining us. Um now we're going to talk about climate change, we're going to talk about environmental injustice, and we're going to talk about social work and the links. But to set the context for the discussion, we need to begin with an overview of the global context in terms of climate change. Now, the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is the United Nations body for assessing the science related to climate change. And in August this year, it published its most recent report on the state of the climate. And it was pretty stark reading. Now, John could you run me through the headline findings of what that report said?
1: Yes, certainly, Andy. And it should be placed in the context of a 2018 IPCC report, which was on 1.5 degree, um, keeping the average temperature of the planet below 1.5 degrees. So, effectively, this sixth assessment report um, it really brings out um, in greater scientific clarity. Uh, Many of the underlying dynamics that are the cause of climate breakdown, that's the language I prefer to use rather than climate change, because I think it's important to get our terms correct. I mean, I think calling it climate change is like calling an invading army unwelcome guests. I think it's singularly inappropriate. It's a planetary emergency that we're facing. So this particular report uh, that came out in August, the sixth assessment report, was uh, declared as Code Red for Humanity by Antonio Guterres, the UN General Secretary. And it demonstrates that uh, we are now just north of uh, global average temperatures having been increased by one degree. And that sounds fairly minuscule, but what it's led to is the unprecedented, you know, heatwave declarations that we've had in Britain and Ireland. I mean, who would have ever thunk it? Britain and Ireland declaring heatwave. Uh, you know problems, and then quickly followed them. We had flooding in Germany. We've had um, you know heat domes in uh, parts of Canada and North America and Siberia. So that's what you know, just north of one degree temperature increase is you know causing already. And so what this report really brings out is that we have more scientific certainty that it is anthropogenic. It's human caused climate breakdown, largely as a result of the burning of fossil fuel, uh, land use changes, uh, things like we're eating far too much in parts of the world, red meat. And we may get into that. So for me, um, to, just to conclude, what this report is really indicating is that we need major system change in all parts of our lives, from how we transport ourselves, you know, our healthcare care system, um, how we heat and cool our homes, how we grow Um, and, uh, you know, um, refine our, our food and so on. So for me, it's the equivalent of scientists who are more or less a fairly conservative bunch. In my experience, this report is the equivalent of the world scientists screaming at the top of their voice saying, please, please, citizens, governments, businesses, we now need to almost, you know, reflect upon the pandemic. That's a real emergency, You know, we've had lots of declarations of climate and ecological emergencies by many, you know, governments and uh, councils, for example, in the UK and Ireland. The pandemic is the type of of, of reaction we need now in terms of, you know, major changes to our ways of life, a state-led rapid response to a public health crisis. Well, this is the biggest challenge that we face, but it's not all bad. This should not be seen in an apocalyptic manner. We have all the solutions and technologies that we we need to address this. It would mean uh, making our societies less unequal, sharing wealth and resources more equitably rather than endless economic growth and focusing on human well-being and flourishing rather than things like gross domestic product and GDP.
3: And And John, that is also welcome, you know, making society more equal is not something many social workers are going to argue with. However... Those are the challenges that we need to get over. You say we have the technology to address these issues. We know that we can. How to make society more equal. Those are still enormous challenges to actually surmount before we can deliver change.
1: Well, it's very true. I mean, not everything that is faced can be overcome, but nothing can be overcome unless it's faced. I mean, that's why at at root, while science has told us what the problems are, neither science or technology will provide all the solutions. At root, this is a, a political, cultural, institutional change. It's a paradigm shift we're talking about. Um, and, and for me, yeah, it's easy to say it will be difficult to do. But if you look back in human history, you know, how did we, you know, uh, challenge sexism, racism? Of course, I'm not saying these things are, are are complete yet. But to me, we've got to look back in our history to see how change can happen and um, the, the nearest or one one equivalent historical example to which we can look: How did societies in Britain and America um, retool themselves during the Second World War? That was a clear and present danger. Uh, they were on a wartime mobilisation where the productive resources of societies went into fighting the war effort. When again, and I'm aware of the negative patriarchal militaristic aspects of what I've just said, but. You know, if you divest from those negative elements, that's the type of all of society effort that we we now need.
3: Thank you, John. That's really helpful in explaining the situation in terms of what's going to happen if we don't address it and what we need to do to address it. But I want to move on, Lena, and I want to talk about who is affected By climate change, what are the realities of climate change on a global level? So when I read the IPPC report, one of the things that jumped out to me was that climate change is already affecting every inhabited region across the globe, with human influence contributing to many observed changes in weather and climate extremes. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to human beings? What does that mean around the globe?
2: Well, I think, unfortunately, it actually means that everyone is affected, but we are affected differently. So people in the global north are affected less than people in the global south. But also within the global north, we have homeless people who contribute very little to climate change but experience most of the implications of it because they're on the streets without housing and so on. So I think that's one level I'd like to highlight. The other one is that most disasters, whether they're... um, um, storm surges, or whether they're droughts or floods. Most of them are floods um, in terms of the number of people affected and the number of um, uh, people who die. Um, But they're all mainly in the global south. So we have something like about 80% of people who are affected by climate change and extreme weather events um, are in the global south. That is not to say that people in the global north are not affected. So we know that 200 people died in Germany, for example, from the recent floods. We had several hundred die in China for similar at the same time. They happened at the same time. And at the, uh, while that was happening in Canada, um, we had a thousand people die from wildfires caused by the heat dome. And the town of Lytton was destroyed completely. In the global south, Mozambique has floods that destroy virtually everything all the time.
3: And but how much how much more does those wildfires in Canada, the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, how much more does flooding in Germany register with us than uh, disasters in Mozambique? Given, you know, we are we are a northern country and we're focused on what's going on at that level.
2: Yeah. I I think we don't pay enough attention to either side would be my view. I think we do need to take seriously, like one of the things that I think is really terrible, is that we keep looking at um, the stalemate, as I call it, which is why don't people do something about, well, John called it climate breakdown, I call it the climate crisis. Um, But why don't people do anything about that? Because we get politicians engaged in a debate about, well, you have a historical wrong to right in the global north. Yes, we do, but we've also moved on from that because the world's worst polluters now, aside from the USA, which is the second uh, biggest polluter being caught up rapidly by India. It's China, India, Russia, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia,
3: they're not in the global north, but Lena. If I could just come in there, that might be true on a on a on a total uh, pollution level. But in terms of per capita, I'm guessing that we still are um, performing worse in the global north. Would that not be the case?
2: We are per capita, yes. But again, as I said before, it depends on who you are. If you're rich, like why do we need um, rich space to people going on space tourism? That's not. It's a it's a claim on us on our air, yeah.
3: I saw, I, I saw that. Uh, William Shatner is going into space today.
2: Yeah, uh, I know. And, and, yeah, and we're supposed uh, to be pleased because he's... It's being
3: celebrated. It's being celebrated in the media. It's an absolute. It's ridiculous.
2: It, and that is nonsense. We should not be saying that because we should be saying we have one Earth and it doesn't matter from the Earth's point of view whether it's created by a rich person or a poor person or an indifferent person. We all have a responsibility. And that's my point. And it's really important that we're all affected. We all have responsibilities but some of us have more responsibilities than others. And that's where I'd say individually in the global north, we have to be more um, accountable for what we use. So we do have to reduce our consumption of fossil fuels, you know some of the things that we've taken for granted like traveling whenever we feel like it everywhere we feel like it is not good enough anymore because we know you know and and this is where my beef with people who just say it's about his history it is about history but it's also about today and tomorrow because the um, carbon dioxide that is being put into the earth today will be around for another 100 years and that is not Acceptable, so that 's why i yeah, I do tweet, so I think you know we need to start talking about what can we do individually and as a profession to make sure that we all accept the um, responsibility for doing what we can and what our countries can, and I think the other thing we have to argue for very strongly is collective collaborative action and solidarity at the international level, so you know we could have everyone. Um, Out of poverty, not having climate um, crises to face, if we all shared the amazing resources we have for renewable energy and all the green technologies easily with everyone.
3: Thank you, Lena. And we're going to move on to talk about collective action. We're going to move on to talk about lobbying uh, government and also uh, action at the global level near the end of the podcast. But I want to talk about also, we've talked about the global implications of climate change, and we have touched on some of the implications uh, at UK level, but I want to dig into that a little bit deeper now. Um, in relation to the impacts on UK and Ireland, according to the Met Office, the UK's climate has continued to warm with 2020, the first year to have temperature, rain and sunshine rankings all in the top 10. Now, that's certainly having impacts. I've been thinking about, we, we mentioned flooding. Um, I was thinking about deaths associated with excess heat. Also, impacts in terms of displaced people, climate migrants; those are going to be issues um, that are going to affect us. Can we, John? First, can you tell us a little bit about how you see things impacting in the UK?
1: I well, I think to reference that report that came out yesterday from the uh, Environment Agency, it was it was basically adapt or die uh, in terms of the types of devastating floodings that we've seen in Germany and other parts of of Europe. This will now be a common occurrence in many uh, low-lying floodplains in in Britain and Ireland. So it's no longer the case that the climate crisis is somehow something happening far away to other people in other parts of the world or is going to happen in the future. It's right here, right now. Um, The other issue that you raise is uh, uh, the question of climate refugees, And, and you won't find that term in international Refugee conventions.
3: That was that was news to me. I only just realised that. Yeah, you,
1: you you cannot turn up to Belfast City Airport or London Heathrow and say, "Hi, I'm Andy. I'm from Tuvalu, low lying atoll in the Southern Pacific, and it's now uninhabitable. There is no protections that can be afforded to you if you are displaced as a result of a of a climatic or weather related extreme event. And this has been resisted, surprise surprise, by the global North. Um, and it's, it, it's almost as if we prefer a charity humanitarian approach rather than one based on justice, because justice is about human rights. It's about the protection of people's human rights. And I think that's something that we are going to have to grapple with as societies. It may be part of the way of reparations and some, You know what Lena was talking about. Well, why not open up that space of protecting people's human rights who are now displaced, not for any fault of our own, by, by protecting their, their, their human rights. But for me, it's going to have major geopolitical impacts uh, in terms of, of that issue. You know, the Syrian refugee crisis, remember that? That quickly went off the media's attention. That was in part a climate uh, breakdown story because of droughts that happened in Syria, which forced people then to move into the cities. So we're already seeing how, uh, essentially, is the finish, that the climate breakdown story is a, is a risk enhancer. Uh, It it doesn't cause necessarily uh, human conflict, but it it can make uh, already existing human difficulties even worse. And there's an example of that. But again, this is a a, it's a global issue that's now been locally experienced.
2: I want to just add a couple of things to what John said. Um, I think we also have to look at how we create wealth and how we um, produce and consume Because those are fundamentally flawed. As long as we're in a neoliberal model of of consumption and production, we are never going to win the climate change um, debate. So I think we need to be involved in um, discussions that shift the paradigm away from how can we um, produce things for the sake of consumption and ask questions about how can we produce things that are going to be long lasting and that make good use of the resources that we have because we have a finite climate, uh, sorry, planet, and we need to kind of keep it all together. The other thing is that I don't think that people in the UK have woken up to the fact that you know there are already parts of the UK that are in drought. I lived in Hampshire for ten years, and it was in drought for the entire ten years I was there. I left it. Um, At least 10 years ago, it's still in drought. It's now catching up to Scotland. Scotland was in drought last year in various parts of the the country. That means we've got to start taking seriously how we use water, how we use um, everything, including our soil. Now, we do have, I, I like the fact that John said, we have the technology to deal with the climate breakdown, as he called it, because even soil, we can rebuild the soils that we've destroyed. Um, because we can add manganese and magnesium and organic matter and actually build up the structure so that it retains water for longer and also helps us both in drought and in floods. We have to stop building places. You know, we've known for years, don't build on floodplains. What does everything... That goes on happening now. I can tell you in Bridge of Allen, they are building a thousand houses on a floodplain. And I think that's 4,000 people. 4,000 people too many because they're going to flood. We don't know when, but they will. So we need to think differently. And
3: that's vitally important, especially when we're having to think about planning for a housing crisis, which the UK undeniably has certainly in the Republic of Ireland as well, John, in Dublin in particular, the, the housing crisis couldn't be more acute. But I want to move on. Thank you so much for sharing um, those insights. Jerry. let's talk social work. That's what we're here to do. Um, I want to talk about why the climate crisis, why climate breakdown matters to social work. Can you explain a little bit, Jerry, why uh, climate injustice, environmental injustice, is a social work issue? Yes,
0: yeah, so John and Lena have talked about how humans are really caught up in this and also that there's political change needed and the whole problem and the solutions kind of touch on how we live so essentially are a matter of ethics the philosophy of you know what we value and what's important to us so that absolutely chimes with social work which is about humanity and it is about politics it is a political activity and it's also a really strongly ethical activity and just bringing this into the social work code of ethics, um, we've talked about social justice and human rights, and there's some really significant um, matters for social workers to attend to in those areas. So, social social justice-wise, climate crisis is putting much greater burden on some people than others, as Lena mentioned. Um, the burden falls on the most disadvantaged people, and the people who are also least kind of equipped, I guess, to respond and potentially at least able to adapt. So there's a real equality problem. Um, and then in terms of human rights, it's affecting people's right to life. It's affecting their right to family life, um, right to you know, a home. And security um, affects freedom of choice. And it's also deeply discriminatory, which is part of, you know, human rights declaration says that we should not discriminate um, between different humans or have a hierarchy of humanity and essentially the, the climate crisis is is causing some people to live better than others there's lots of other other things that do that but this this is why at heart it's it's something that we need to attend to and our code of ethics in in the UK in Baswa does specifically talk about the environment um, and relates that back to to humans you know how we live so it says that we Um, should be looking at the interactions between human beings, their social situation and their environment, and that we should be thinking about the the way that wider systems, including the natural environment, affect people. So there's a real call to action already in the Code of Ethics. And I think there's lots of different layers in which this is a social work matter. So it is a matter for us as um, social workers in our individual practice Whatever role we might have, we'll be interacting with people um, and we can attend to their understanding of and their ability to respond to um, climate crisis and how it affects them. And then there's a collective activity for us to lobby and campaign and raise the the issues that we face um, and to bring that back to the benefits for humanity as well. Um, and we could do that both nationally and and internationally.
3: Jerry, I just wanted to come back to the issue of displaced people. So, John has said that there's no definition of mm. climate refugee. That was le- learning I came across in preparing for this episode. But people are being displaced. Uh, John mentioned Syria. I just learned recently that the migrant crisis in, in terms of America, a lot of um, people uh, migrating from the Central Americas, is, is largely driven by flooding. That was news to me as well. It was helpful to find that out. But Baz has done a huge amount of work in relation to no recourse to public funds for people that are um, seeking asylum in the UK and supporting asylum seekers and refugees is a really key aspect of social work um, practice. That's an issue that's going to become more
0: of a problem. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's, there's proactive work that it would be good to be able to do around some of these international barriers and political barriers to people um, being, or being forced to migrate in the first place. You know, It would be good if we could address the problems. Um, And then there's also big barriers and issues around people being able to migrate. Um, I think that those are things that social workers can campaign on. Um, But there's also going to be, as you say, the response to those people who do move, um, because people do move. They're ingenious and wonderful and they find ways to move. And when, when they find themselves here, there's really important work that's needed around... Um, the practical support and well-being and resources that they need and also the emotional and um, you know the, the trauma of having to move and, and being displaced. So you're right, Baswell has done a lot of work around um, no recourse to public funds in particular, but there's much wider work around asylum seekers, refugees and migrants and how, how we can support them. And I'd really recommend people to have a look at the no recourse to public fund guidance. Just got some really practical stuff in it. We have great social workers doing really good work
3: with people. Absolutely, thank you, Jerry. Now I want to move on to talk about eco anxiety. So social workers play a key role in supporting people with mental health needs, um, and I've been reading recently about eco anxiety. A study by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which I think was published in September last year, it found that about half of its members that were working in the NHS um, confirmed that they'd seen patients during the past year who were, um, quote, distressed about environmental and ecological issues. Now, that rate increased to 57% for child and adolescent psychiatrists in England. Now, it's not hyperbole to describe the climate crisis. We've been talking about a crisis. We've been talking about climate breakdown and it's an existential threat. But that sort of message can have a big impact on many people and their, their mental and emotional well-being. John, I've heard you speak before on, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing, but on climate change and the politics of hope. You've been seeking to empower people to make change in the face of otherwise disempowering messaging. Can we talk about that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's something that um, as an educator, I'm very privileged that I you know, see young people every year But for the first time in almost 30 years of of teaching practice, this year I've had to put trigger warnings on my modules just to uh, alert people to monitor their own emotional reaction because some of these issues, if you're very new to them, can be quite frightening. Um, And certainly I, I do think there is... A question of without sugarcoating, um, not only uh, is Jerry correct that people are amazingly resilient, but but also that we can cope with distressing issues and work our way then through it. But for me, it is that it is about then how do we generate um, hope? And I begin from the proposition that, you know, for a lot of young people, it's easier for them to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that, to me, is a, is a terrible statement to make in our current culture. The lack of political imaginary that we can redesign and retool and repurpose our economies and societies that their their health in parting their inequality producing that we're moving away from a a dig and gig ecocidal economy that we have the science and the social science for to a care and repair one. And for me, how we generate that that hope is through agency. And that agency has to be collective as much as as individual. This is a political project in terms of people not individualizing responsibilities. I think there's a there's a danger of the kind of recycling individual carbon footprinting kind of model, which was invented by British Petroleum, the big fossil fuel company, by the way. So for me. Hope is generated through agency. It's generated through people taking action, clearly becoming aware um, and taking whatever action they feel possible, but not to dwell either in that it's all their responsibility because you become overwhelmed. This is a shared collective project and it, there are structures that are causing these problems. It's not individual malfeasance. You know, many people are locked into, you know, fossil fuel based behaviors because there's no public transportation. They have to drive a car and so on. So for me, the, we begin with knowledge. I, I think injustice is at the heart of this in terms of wherever you find unsustainability in how we treat the earth, you will invariably find human rights abuses and injustice. And so it's the conjoining of social and ecological justice, which is where I think, you know, just to finish social work along with trade unions and along, I would say, with faith communities, political parties, community groups, sports groups, we are going to need a whole of society collective effort in terms of being able to learn from each other and and help each other. So I think that idea of partnership working uh, because it's unprecedented that we have to go fast and move very, very quickly. And we're best doing that together Uh, as opposed to alone. So we need a political, not individualised response. And I think that's where hope is generated. But what maintains the hope, I think, as a political scientist, is that sense of a burning injustice. That is the only thing that has ever shifted the dial historically and making our societies better. And I do think in the planetary crisis, we have an intersectional coalescing of multiple injustices that we can solve at the same time. And we must
3: and I suppose when you look at, you know, grassroots movements, there is Extinction Rebellion. There's also the what is Insulate Britain, which is attracting a lot of attention at the moment. But we compare that to the likes of Black Lives Matter, which is, you know, a huge movement uh, and a much, much needed movement. Similar um, focus on ecological catastrophe. It, it's It's not comparable. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest.
1: No, I mean, but, but there is a conjoining already happening between, you know, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter, uh, decolonizing our, our curriculum, the whole issue of, of statues in our public places, because, you know, at the heart of the history of this is colonialism and imperialism, uh, as well as carbon consumerism and capitalism. And that's not too many C's to throw into the mix. So it is about seeing how does Black Lives Matter connected this. And you see this, for example, in America, in the Sunrise Movement, and and a lot of excitement around, you know, young Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are able to identify, you know, racial injustice, along with the Green New Deal and that hope for a better future in America, which is also about addressing racial inequalities, because there's issues of class, of gender inequality, as well as race, Uh, also at the heart of this, you know, addressing the planetary crisis is not a gender-free zone. It's not a class-free zone, and it certainly isn't a race-free
3: zone. John, we could talk about that for the next half an hour. I'm sure you'd enjoy it, and I would enjoy it. I imagine most listeners would enjoy it too, but I want to move on. I want to talk about how social workers can respond to effect change. So, Jerry, um, in relation to what John was sharing about eco-anxiety um, and those issues that are facing younger people, he talked about trigger warnings in his, um, his lectures, for example. How can that knowledge uh, that John has shared, how can that affect social work practice?
0: I was really interested in, in the, um, the thinking of the politics of hope because I think social work is ultimately a hopeful profession. It is about change, the idea, the basis of it is that people and situations can change. And so for social workers, encountering people who feel stuck or trapped, um, or who feel like that themselves, I think that is something to really come back to that we we have really strong evidence and experience uh, that people and situations do change. So I suppose in terms of our response, the first thing really is, you know, experts or not, and I'm definitely not an expert, we can we can make a difference we can play a part and we can definitely build our own awareness and our own confidence and hopefulness and do that by seeking support from one another social workers are a really good kind of um tribe i guess for for shared values and shared kind of purpose so getting together and identifying what we can do in our own lives i think is is really helpful and then what we do professionally uh there's two there's two really important roles i think that social workers have at the kind of community um level really um at the social level uh so the first is around we do need to respond to the impact there's practical support that's needed there's emotional support that's needed there's a really important role for social workers in responding to disasters particularly and you know you've had a podcast on that before um but there's also i think a much more proactive role that we aren't fulfilling yet we we could move into that space much more and i was just at the international federation of social workers europe conference and there was a workshop on green social work led by the netherlands and they were talking about this community social work role in engaging with communities raising awareness and supporting people to make changes based on understanding and i think hope that they can make a difference so there's, there's really great examples of greening spaces cleaning up spaces changing energy changing housing. Um, And also there was was an example in in Croatia, a really um, practical example of um, supporting people to have uh, devices that limited the flow of water from their taps, which meant that they saved money um, and the water supply was better managed. And that was also an awareness raising thing and collective action and brought people together. So I think there's loads more we can do in that space. And I would say Berswood branches and groups are quite a good place to to, to debate that and discuss that and the other thing of course is that there are people who are doing this already some social workers are of course um i think you know, there's great groups that we can get involved with and make connections with so i think again in, in the interests of hope not thinking that we've got to start over there's lots of lots of really good things we can join up with
3: Thank you, Jerry. I actually just remind, reminded myself I, I saw on Twitter the other day, it was a map of cycling infrastructure in Europe. So it was a Europe wide map. And the Netherlands, everything, all the stri- cycle lanes were red. Netherlands was basically just a red dot. Germany was pretty good. Ireland, you know, so, so, uh, GB was okay. But yes, in terms of ensuring those infrastructures are there to allow people to be healthy, to live healthy lives. Because we know the connections between mental health and um, physical health are, 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 you know, they're undisputed. Um, and being able to support that sort of work at a community level is vital.
0: There was an amazing quote from one of the people in the, um, from the Netherlands group who said, Having green in the neighbourhood is like having an assistant social worker.
3: Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, I mean, I I have a friend who used to live in a very, very built up part of Belfast, the village area, John, I don't know where that is. And they were there for a year and they had to get out because he was just saying the oppressiveness of living somewhere that had absolutely no green space was was really impacting his mental health. And he, he did have some mental health problems, you know. But then, yes, again, there's an issue of equality there. You know, I live in a really nice, leafy, middle class area. That's not the experience of people who live in the village area in South Belfast. And it's talking about those localized environmental problems that I really want to talk, uh, move on to and speak to Lena about. You know, I'm thinking about Lena air pollution in particular. So I've read a couple of UK based studies which indicate that people in more deprived areas are at far greater risk of air pollution, despite having contributed least to the problem. And you were talking about that earlier, about how often the people that contribute the least are the ones that suffer the most how can social workers respond at a practical level to those sort of localised environmental problems?
2: Well, I think Jerry and and John both gave us some tips. One is that we have to get back to community social work to really engage with people and the problems that they are experiencing at the micro level of their day-to-day life, and then use that to move to the meso level of the nation state and then internationally to show global solidarity. But I think we also need to kind of um, understand the actual situations. I don't think that most social work academics are looking at their smartphones and saying, what's the pollution outside here today? I've really become aware of it in the last few weeks since I've come to Stirling. And I look outside and I see these things falling down. Now, maybe I have very good eyesight. I didn't think I did. Um, And I think, so what are those things that are falling down? And then you look at all the layers of dirt. So you think, what's in that? And we as social workers don't really think very much about what's the chemical composition of that dust that I'm breathing in, because if it's falling down, you're breathing it in as well. So for air pollution, it's really quite important that we understand the science behind it, I would argue. So I'm I'm quoting a little bit from um, Greta Thunberg, who started the Fridays for Futures movement with young people. And um, I think that air pollution then goes and affects the soil and the water as well. So it isn't just limited to air pollution, because if it's got heavy metals in it, which is what I suspect, so I've been telling my students, we are going to start a movement here in Stirling when I come up to look at what we can do to do something about this pollution that is dropping from the sky 24-7. Because even at night, and I have good places to compare it to. I cannot see the sky or the sun or the moon very often in in Stirling when I've been here. So that's one thing we've got to do. Get back to our community social work roots where we become referral agents to everyone else. So that's one of the things we have to do, because we don't know all the things we need to know. But we can lobby, politicians and other people as social workers, so we can lobby for clean air, because again, it's the people who live in the poorest areas, including the poorest areas of Scotland. So go to Grangemouth, go to Falkirk, don't go to Stirling in the middle of Stirling, because that's where the better off people live. And I'm sure I keep thinking if I go to the middle of Stirling, will I find the air is better? Will I notice when I notice out here where I am near the university? And it's not that far from the hills. So that's another question. The other one is we have to go back to our mobilization skills to sort of say, okay, besides air pollution, what else is it doing? If it's falling in the water, is it causing us to lose lose, um, biodiversity in our streams, like the trout and the salmon and everything else? So that's another question that I think we should be asking. And then what about agribusiness, which is adding to the pollution in the sky and in the soil and in the water by discharging all its effluent into? that area. What can we as social workers do? Well, we can find out what the people living locally know about those areas because they know what the problem is, as well as how it is impacting on their lives. And we need to start recording those things and being researchers of everyday life, I would argue, um, to mobilize people effectively at the micro, meso and macro level. And I also think that we need to kind of like think about Do we just accept that the biggest polluters of our air are kind of like the big heavy industries, smelting? Um, We don't do a lot of it now, but we do a bit. um, Burning, uh, sorry, mining coal, and the government wants to open another one in Lancaster. And I think, oh no, not really. Um, But are we right to kind of like send it abroad and ask the Chinese to get their um, uh, carbon footprint up? Well, I don't think so. So we need to start looking for new ways of thinking about the interconnections and the interdependencies that we have at the level of everyday life across the world. And then I think people will be able to understand it because we can help them relate it to what they do every day. And this can range from recycling to not consuming to um, saying everything must have except, there are some things that we do need fossil fuels for, and that is for some medicines, we need petroleum and, and, and oil. But for most things, we can have alternatives to that. So I would like us as social workers to focus on alternative ways of meeting our human needs, ways that A, do not cost the earth, B, do not increase environmental racism, either within country or across countries, and um, see that actually do not ask women to waste a lot of their lives and their eyesight and everything else kind of like doing very small um, scale stuff to produce the um, things that we need for our computers and our um, smartphones and everything else. And they're mainly in the global South. So I think that social workers have a huge task because we understand people's everyday lives. So we have to link that with the science, and also with uh, John's point about hope. Without moral hope, we have nothing because we will just crawl into a hole somewhere.
3: Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Lena. That's incredibly helpful. And then it's moving on to to discuss those global, uh, those global intergovernmental uh, issues. Now, one of the reasons we're making this podcast when we're making it is because the uh, COP26 um, conference is being held in Glasgow from the 31st of October to the 12th of November. I don't know if everyone else knew this, but COP is Conference of the Parties. I'd heard about all the COPs. I didn't actually know what it stood for. Uh, John is nodding. Lena's nodding. I didn't know. Um, right. But in terms of delivering change at, at governmental level, um, Jerry, I want to talk about what BASWA is doing and what it can do more um, to affect change at governmental level. So Talking about the UK government, there is aspects of policymaking that would affect environmental uh, justice at devolved level. But thinking about the UK level, the Westminster government, what is Baswa doing to challenge the Westminster government?
0: I think the influence that we have to change politics um, is is a collective influence. I think you know, what John said was about system change. That's what's needed. And Baswa is... Um, as a change agent in that sense, we're trying to make changes for a better society as part of our mission. So I suppose in terms of the collective action that we're doing, we are responding, I think we would say, I would say we're responding still more to the problems that are in place, like um, the inequality that's, that this is exacerbating and the poverty that is exacerbating and the issues around migration, than we have necessarily done the proactive lobbying about what's needed specifically for the climate. Um, And specifically to respond to the climate crisis and and proactively reduce that. We have got a sustainability, environmental impact and climate justice statement that we just put out, which built on our sustainability statement. So the sustainability position statement that we did was really about how we internally act and how we work sustainably in Baswa. I think it does start with us, but we have to go much further. The statement that we put out in August, just before our annual general meeting, is about how we... um, Engage social workers in this and build collective voice, and that will give us a a lot more scope to lobby and campaign. Um, I think there's an education element in that, and then there's a kind of getting people together element. In terms of our influence in Westminster, we have a parliamentary officer who goes into Westminster. We have really good links in there. We have um, a um, role in the all party parliamentary group for social work. So there are definitely forums ways in for us to talk about this. I think traditionally we've tended to talk to the ministries that respond to um, adults and children's social care rather than to the business ministry or to the climate ministry or to the environmental ministry, you know, um, whichever particular configuration or or names they have at the time. But those departments that relate to um, the economy and the environment and technology and business, I think we could do a lot more there. The biggest Influence, I would say that Baswell has is as the UK member to the International Federation of Social Workers. So we um, we represent the UK both in the Europe region and then globally. And I think the International Federation of Social Workers have real scope to bring social workers together and to have a really strong voice and build influence. And that is definitely happening. I think that's a very hopeful thing. Uh, so we just had. To, um, just as we're recording this, we just had the International Federation of Social Workers Europe meeting, and Europe has agreed to put climate change and climate crisis onto our work plan so that we can do much more collectively to share learning and develop activism and develop actions across our region. We also have to attend to the, something that came up, which is about the discrepancy between Europe and other regions globally. Um, so, have dialogues with other regions, and that's something that the executive Europe is going to be looking at but also even more significantly IFSW Global has a representative to the United Nations Um, we have um, a lot of work that's going on globally to support the sustainable development goals Um, we have really good um, and and growing ways of sharing learning from different places so for example in India there's really um, great expertise as I understand it around reforestation which we definitely need (laughs) if we're in Europe so it's kind of Making those links as well. Um, and as well as IFSW having the opportunity to influence COP, we also have jointly with the UN a summit. Oh,
3: tell me a bit more about that.
0: So, yeah, IFSW and the UN Research Institute for Social Development are holding the summit next um, June into July, which is about co building a new eco social world. And that's got partners signed up from lots of different professions and um, Parts of society, parts of global society, like million, representing millions of people, IFSW itself represents millions of social workers. Um, so there's a real scope there to, um, to, to influence and have a voice.
3: Fantastic. Thank you, Jerry. It's, it's really helpful to see the influence that Baz was having, the influence Baz was having through IFSW and at the level that influence is being felt. Sorry, Lena, you were trying to come in there.
2: Um, I would also like to have the opportunity, if you can bear it, to talk about COP26, because I'm going and I represent social work there and have done since uh, the year dot.
3: Oh, yes, of course. Please do.
2: I've been representing social work and I got together with IFSW, ICSW, the International uh, uh, Council for Social Welfare, and IASSW, which is the Schools of Social Work. Um, back in 2009 in Copenhagen, and we got together to have the first conference on um, climate change for globally, for social work. And as a result of that, we produced a policy document, which um, should be in the archives. It's certainly up on the IASSW website. And then in 2010, I um, became the representative for IASSW, and IFSW and ICSW asked me if I would Carry the the flag for everybody in in the profession, which of course I'm more than happy to, since I belong to all three organizations in different ways. Um, But this year I am taking, because children were the people that are the most affected, I am taking the, the voice of children. So I'm going to be going there with children from a local school to talk about what do children know about climate change? Where do they learn what they know? And what can they do about climate change? And this is uh, children from age 13 to 18. The other thing I'm doing is I've been given permission to have a um, um, an, an exhibition for social work on the invisibility of social work in climate change debates and discussions. It's not like uh, you were saying, Jerry, we do do a lot of things, but nobody knows about them. So that's another thing I'll be doing. I'll also because I'm working with UNICEF on climate change risk to children, and they mean anybody under 18. So we've got a big research and a transdisciplinary research project on that. So we'll be talking about that through the UNICEF link. And um, I will be going to different places to lobby governments. um, And then I'm going to be lobbying the EU, the UK, Canada, the US and China and India about what are you going to do about climate change? Because I want to hold you accountable because in a way, those of us like me, I represent an NGO, we're a research NGO, so we're called Ringo's and we are observers to the parties. The parties are the governments. Um, And um, as a result of that, I want to be witness to what they say they're going to do. And I do often, not always, but often get um, the opportunity to ask questions. And that was where I found out, you know, that we're going to have between 250 million and a billion climate change refugees. So and where are they going? North, because the tropics and the south are going to be uninhabitable.
3: Thanks, Lena. Um, now, listen, final question. And I didn't tell either you or John that you're going to be asked this. And we're going to spare Jerry this question. But if you were able to take control of one UK government ministry uh, and you could make change to, to address the climate crisis, which ministry would you take and what would be the first change you would make?
2: I would want economics and to move away from fossil fuel to, um, production in agriculture and in industry.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Lena. And John, yourself, what would you take and what would you do? Uh, the Treasury,
1: because uh, in the UK context, the, the government is not like a household. It can never run out of the money that it creates itself. We have all the money available to make a green sun transition and to you know, create a less unequal society. So certainly the Treasury could use the power that's been lying dormant. And we've seen glimpses of it during the pandemic, the furloughing of workers and so on. We do not need austerity. Neither do we need to raise taxes to create the, uh, the money that we need for the capital spend. And I would also change the ridiculous ways in which the green book that the Treasury uses to vet public funding doesn't take into account the climate risks and the public health benefits of many of the changes that we've talked about. It is completely ill-equipped for the challenge that we face. And I would make uh, short work of it if I was the Secretary of State for the
3: Treasury. Thank you, John. Jerry, I would automatically make you Secretary of State for Education, uh, so you'd be dealing with children's social work anyway. So,
0: <laughs> And I would ask people like Luna to come and talk to the children, and John as well, so that, that we'd end up with a bright future, definitely.
3: Well, thank you, everyone, for speaking with me today. It's been incredibly insightful. It's been incredibly helpful. Thanks.
0: Thank
1: you. Uh, it's been delightful. I'll just leave you with three words that, for me, sums up our conversation. Educate, agitate, organise.
2: Yeah, I I couldn't um, hope for a better comment than the one that John just gave you. I think we just have to keep fighting and fighting in all the ways that we can. But thank you very much for asking me to um, be party to this uh, conversation,
0: because I think it's been incredibly important and useful. Thank you.
3: Anytime, Nina. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you, everyone. I hope every listener gets as much out of it as I have. It's been really, really useful learning. Thank you.